Thank you for listening if you are listening. Thank Um, you for listening to our voices that we can't stand ourselves. Welcome to Sisteria, a podcast about women and non-binary creatives and their experiences creating and consuming arts and culture. I'm your host, Steph Van Schilt, and in today's episode, I speak with writer, animal expert, and all-round delightful human, Laura Jean McKay. Laura is the author of the recently released novel, Animals in That Country, and in 2013, she released Holiday in Cambodia, a collection of short stories that was shortlisted for three National Book Awards in Australia. Laura's work has appeared in Mianjin, Overland, Best Australian Stories, The Saturday Paper and The North American Review. She's a lecturer in creative writing at Massey University with a PhD from the University of Melbourne, focusing on literary animal studies. Laura is also the animal expert presenter on ABC Listen's Animal Sound Safari. It was so lovely catching up with Laura for today's recording. We spoke about releasing a novel that's about a pandemic during a pandemic. We talked about performing and recording her audiobook, which meant she had to perform the voices of animals because, yes, animals do speak in her book. And she also offered some advice for healthier and more practical ways to approach the news because I, for one, cannot stop doom scrolling. I started off by asking Laura how she was feeling about promoting a book during lockdown. How am I feeling about promoting the book? I mean, it's been very, very bizarre I guess while I was writing the book I was quite sick and so I was sort of in my own little um, painful lockdown the whole time and I was sort of pointing towards this year of being able to get on stage with other people who've released books at the same time like Rebecca Giggs with Fathoms and um, Aaron Hortle with The Octopus and I and Chris Flynn with Mammoth. I just wanted to talk to other people about this crazy thing that is writing about other animals and I wanted to sort of share that with audiences and also to learn from it myself to get out of that writing process and get into the talking process I guess Um, and so to then suddenly be very inside and very insular again was a real shock Um, and I was really I was extremely worried that bookshops would shut down and nobody would be able to actually buy the book but luckily in Australia um, they stayed open unlike New Zealand in Australia they stayed open and people did book buying sprees (laughs) of massive proportions and then all these other you know organizations and um, events just totally contorted to make it possible for authors to get their work out there Um, yeah, just just amazing um, ideas and and opportunities that I would just never have thought of, and it meant that I could have this big fat book launch online um, with all these people who wouldn't normally have joined because they live in places other than Melbourne, and so that was really beautiful. And I've been attending book launches. Um, you know, Ellen Van Nieven launched Throat the other day in Brisbane and I could go to that and and be there because it's online. So that's been a really beautiful thing. So you were talking about all these other authors who've written about animals and your book is obviously about 
animals. How would you describe your book? Can you give a plot summary for listeners if they haven't heard of it? Sure. So it's it's a road story uh, with a big difference and the big difference is that the people who are going on this road trip are a hard-drinking grandmother called Jean and a very talky, <laughs> chatty dingo called Sue. And when I say chatty, I mean that she actually talks and so do the other animals. This strange new flu has swept through the country and one of the symptoms is that people can finally talk to and understand what other animals' bodies are saying. And for some people, that's a really cool thing. And at first, Jean, the protagonist, thinks that this is great. But as it develops, uh, people start to realise that what act- what animals are saying isn't necessarily what we want to hear. <laughs> and how did you come up with that concept? Because it's not, it's not something you hear of every day. Um, where did it come from? Oh, it's such a good question. I, I'm, I'm never quite sure where these things come from. I think that I've always been quite fascinated by other animals and I'm also really fascinated um, by um, dialogue and also um, where does the idea come from it's not actually a very hard question but it's just very very complex Um, no it is I mean like you've been writing it for a long time so it's not necessarily one idea either is it it's like yeah yeah so like I have a few origin stories that I tell but I but like where it actually comes from is um guess one of the main things that happened was that I was living in the bush um on this writer's residence and um I was walking along this bush track one day and I literally bumped into this rogue male kangaroo who was the size of me and we just stared at each other and I should have been absolutely terrified and he should have been terrified too because I'm a human and we don't tend to do very nice things to kangaroos. Uh, But we just looked at each other and sort of did this dance um, to either side of each other trying to get past each other and then finally found our way. And Later on, he hung around the house and we think maybe he was sick and had been kicked out of his mob and then he went away and, you know, maybe he went off to die and maybe he went off to live a, a full life. Um, but I started thinking about the connection between humans and other animals and how we have these connections and misinterpretations and and um, mistaken sort of moments all of the time and the thing that, we put up as the main separator between humans and other animals is language. It's like humans are so much better than other animals because we have language. Um, Firstly, if we're so much better than other animals, why are we destroying the planet? (laughs) Secondly, what happened if we took away that language barrier? What happened if, if there was something that enabled us to understand what they were actually saying? Um, what happens then? Are we still so much better than them? Um, or do can we learn things from them? Or actually are they just living these other lives that have nothing to do with us? And that was sort of what propelled me forward and started to change my ideas of how I see other animals um, and also how I see humans and our place in the world as well. Yeah, I was going to ask about Jean as a character because at times she's very empathetic and sympathetic and you feel for her and 
you know, you said she's very hard drinking and she's lived quite a hard life, but at other times she's not sympathetic and she's quite awful and you hear some, she tells you some things that she does that you're like, oh, not that into you. How was it crafting a character like that? Was that very deliberate and why did you choose to to write her that way? Yeah, I needed I needed a character who could carry quite a heavy story um, because this is a work of of gritty realist fiction, but it's also a speculative novel um, that has an animal apocalypse in it, um, and that's a very very heavy load. Um, so I felt that it needed to be told from one perspective, a first person perspective, to be able to hold all of that, and. I tried a few different characters. She was a cat at one point. She was this middle-aged man who just seemed to sit on a couch and I couldn't get him moving. Um, She was also a a woman who worked in a lab and then a farmer. And then I thought, um, you know, who who is strong in our society? Who can who can carry a heavy load? And I was like a middle-aged woman, you know, a middle-aged woman who's been through a bit. Um, and is brave and brazen um, and really, really cares what other people think about her but also doesn't, (laughs) doesn't really give a shit. Um, And so Jean just came forth and I gave her my middle name because I needed to sort of feel closer to the character and that was just a writerly trick but then once she had that name she just took off on the page. Um, So I wanted her to be likeable. I wanted people to feel close to her. But I also didn't want her to just get away with everything either. Um, Jean is casually racist and casually homophobic and she is a really problematic character. Um, She isn't a great role model for her son or her granddaughter. Um, I didn't want for her to be this character that, pretends not to have all of the problems that a colonial settler um, white woman in Australia does have. I I didn't want to pretend that that doesn't exist just because I'm writing fiction and so I I needed to give her these these very big issues (laughs) that don't necessarily get resolved but are there. And you also wrote an animal character. You talk about Sue the dingo. There are a few lines in it that really stuck with me Obviously, you wrote in verse, which is kind of a formal element of trying to com- convey their communication, animals' communication. But you'd write lines like, for Sue, smell is like the internet. That really stuck with me and I loved that that line. Sue, for me, is felt as well as like reading her dialogue. What was it like writing an animal character? Because obviously you've done animal studies, you're the animal expert presenter on ABC Listen's Animal Sound Safari, you have the utmost respect, you just told the story about the kangaroo and obviously this book is very much about the relationship between the species but what was it like crafting an actual dingo as a character? It was really hard. (laughs) Um I Sue really just emerged from the narrative um, based on some time I spent with dingoes in a wildlife park um up north um and and I was I was living in this wildlife park and I was just always drawn to the dingo enclosure um the way that dingoes call is so mournful um so lonely it it, their long calls they carry so far it's just a beautiful sound and they're so smart they're so smart so smart so smart and they've got 
you know, their smell is so advanced, you know, more advanced than other canines. Um, and, yeah, Sue just sort of burst onto the page. I didn't really think about Sue. And, again, once she was there um, and her sort of slight, her and Jean's slight obsession with each other <laughs> um, really carried off. But in terms of her talking, um, it was always an exploration with Sue. A, a dingo is a very complex character in Australian society anyway, Um they are killed because people think that they're feral. Um, some people want them as pets. Um, some people think that they're native animals. Some people think that they're introduced. Um, they're sort of all these things, but also much more than our, our ability to car- categorise them. And so I wanted Sue's dialogue to be very complex. Um, and so her dialogue, there's a lot of brackets. Um, she will say, um, you know, something like, I love you. And then in brackets, she'll be like, no, I don't. <laughs> so it's almost <laughs> like she's got this naughty dingo on her shoulder, um, <laughs> um, always whispering in her ear. And for me, I wanted that to be her sort of captive upbringing um, alongside her wild nature um, constantly in battle with each other. Oh, so I don't really, I don't really feel that I ever really um, completely got to know Sue. And I know that's a strange thing for a writer to say <laughs> when they created a character, but I felt like she was the embodiment of the wonder I feel when I, when I encounter an animal um, and, and stare at them. And they're probably thinking, oh shit, I've got to get away, you know, like this person's going to kill me. And I'm just thinking, you know, what wonder to be able to have the abilities of flight or or smell or sonar that these animals have. I think if you did say that you completely understood her, her or knew her, that would undercut your overall messaging and your being, really. That's so true. Um, did you just say that you lived in an animal park? Yeah, I just threw that in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, um. So how do you go from living in an animal park to becoming a writer? Like, just give me a little bit of an understanding of this journey, please. <laughs> I got this amazing residency um, up at the um, the northern the Northern Territory Wildlife Park, and I went and lived there for a few months in a caravan in the actual park underneath a ranger's house. And there was just there were there were the captive animals, and the rangers were so you know um, generous in in sharing their knowledge and and helping me to access the captive animals. But also they often had wild counterparts, so these barking animals in the enclosure would go woof woof every night and then up above you'd hear the wild ones calling back to them um there were pythons everywhere uh there was a python who blocked my access to the toilet every day between two and four so so she could get some sun too bad for you too bad for me um so it was a really it was a really full-on experience though um I felt like I was one of the exhibits. Um, I I was felt very confronted by the intensity of of captive animals, even though the park, you know, is a really great park. Um, there's certain things that come out when animals are in captivity. So I just recorded everything. I wrote down everything. I took photos of everything. I recorded smells, feelings. I collected little bits of fur that I would find, leaves, dust, Um and none of it was categorised. I didn't research in a particularly effective way, but all of it sort of went into the novel, even if not in a in a particularly um, 
you know, obvious way. Um, and I did, I did finish a terrible draft of the novel there in the caravan as well. Um, and I, I hit the last full stop and I just went over to the sink, which was very close to me because I was in a caravan <laughs> and just threw <laughs> up because of the intensity of what I was trying to write and also the intensity of how bad my draft was and how much work I would need to do um, to keep going at it. Um, and by that stage... That's a really animalistic response. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Yeah, so it is a very, like, all of my senses and all of my animal behaviour sort of went into the novel. Um, and and because it, I wrote, was writing it for so long, um, you know, I think, yeah, it, it just, it was a very intense experience. How long were you writing it for? I reckon about seven years probably, fairly, fairly constantly. Um, and there were at least two years in there where it was the worst writing that has ever been done by anybody. So <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. I had to just. <laughs> but it must feel like I understand it feeling that way. I think to get to to get to something, um, to get to a place where animals can talk vaguely in a vaguely realistic way in a book to a human, um, it has to go through a really really ugly phase um, because it's 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 not a it's not a. A normal thing to do. And then now, seven years later, it's been released at this particularly specific singular moment in our living history, in our living memory. We have to talk about the fact that there is a zoo flu and a pandemic. And I did want to ask whether you were a soothsayer, because there are things in this book that are very, very on point right now. Not only, like, I guess if it had, if coronavirus hadn't, you know, happened, in the same way it, were, uh, it has, I think this book would be discussed in terms of the fires and the recent, you know, cataclysmic events in terms of, uh, yeah, the Australian bushfires and and what we've done to the wildlife. But now we've also got the pandemic element and there are lines in there where you constantly talk about all the characters talk about the new normal and they're wearing masks and it was just the parallels between, obviously it's fiction and it's very different, but... You couldn't have predicted, or could you have predicted, <laughs> that you were going to be releasing it at this kind of moment? Like, how how does that feel? And, like, I don't know. How, like, obviously there have been pandemics before, but nothing quite like this. Like, how, how does that feel? <laughs> yeah, I don't think I have a good enough imagination to have ever imagined something like coronavirus. Like, it is beyond my wildest dreams. And I certainly, when I was writing the novel, I certainly didn't imagine that we would live through times like this. Um, obviously, all writers um, are responding, or especially those working in speculative fiction, are responding to, um, you know, climate change events and um, the horrors of the world, even if we're not trying to. It's just in there. Um, <laughs> yeah, the coronavirus is something else, and it was really, really weird to see things happening in the news that I had written about in the novel, especially in the early stages with people fighting in supermarkets and, and uh, whether to or not to wear masks, um, locking down, staying inside, um, fear of others. Um, that was very weird. And it, it all probably seems um, quite 
creepy and uh, maybe a bit crystal ball-y. But actually um, pandemics and and disasters do often follow <laughs> quite um, quite a tried and true uh, pattern. And I had worked in aid work, um, you know, with, uh, with Red Cross and, and Care Australia. So I had um, responded to the SARS pandemics. I had, um, you know, responded to the 2004 tsunamis and and the Haiti earthquakes um, and the Christchurch earthquakes. And people in those situations would talk about the new normal. It's it's sort of not it's not a new phrase. It's it's a phrase that people who have have lived through times like that, um, you know, um, tend to use. The big difference is that um, my characters, you know, once they've got, once they're infected, they get out in the world. It's sort of like, well, we've got it now. Let's go talk to some animals. Ooh, what's that animal saying? That's a bit intense. Um, the, the big, the big difference here was that we all stayed inside and locked down and became so insular, um, and and that was that was a real deviation and and shock, I think, but. One other thing that did come out that I didn't expect was this focus on um, wildlife and other animals during the pandemic and suddenly people felt that they were noticing more birds around and, um, you know, there's rats taking over Sydney and, um, you know, different stories of, of penguins wandering through whales. And so that was a real joy to me, even though I'm heartbroken at at what people are and have been going through in the pandemic. It's horrible. It's really, really interesting to see um, nature's response, I suppose, to a little bit of quiet, a little bit less pollution, um, a little bit more space. Right, even just like the lack of planes and just seeing the bluer skies and, you know, the skylines without all of the smog. It's definitely um, it's eye-opening, to say the least, I think. Given that you have worked in these situations in terms of like crises and disaster relief and you've helped with pandemics before I thought it would be a good time to um transition into our arrogant aunt segment great I love that you have this section (laughs) arrogant aunt (laughs) so arrogant aunt is the segment where we ask listener questions and we answer them with an authority we just don't have It's an exercise in imposter syndrome for all of us. Today's question is from Sasha, and I'll just play the question now. Hi, this is Sasha. I was just hoping that you could give me some advice about how to stay up to date with the news without being so overwhelmed given what's going on in the world right now. Thanks. Do you have any tips, Laura? Sure. Um, So many opinions. (laughs) I'm so arrogant. (laughs) (laughs) Um. We are really politically engaged beings, um, especially with social media and and access to everything now. And it is really important um, that we are engaged in that way. Uh, I also think that there's a mistake in believing that we need to know everything and comment on everything and share everything and be there for every moment Um in the world because that is just going to wear us down. Um, we certainly don't need to click on or even think about Donald Trump in the way that we do. He wants us to click on everything he does um, and we perpetuate that. He makes just says silly things every single day and it's not going to change if we don't 
pay attention to him for for five days. Um, in the same way, it is essential that we're currently um, so engaged um, with the protest movement in the states, um, and it's important that we show our support for that, <clears throat> especially um, if you are white um, and you, you know, it might make us all. Um, rethink or try harder but also there is not much we can do about it other than show some support whereas there are things that we can do in Australia and New Zealand um, with um, black deaths in custody and movements around that we can we can be part of that change and and physically emotionally and monetarily help Um, and so I guess it's about looking at what you're passionate about and trying to focus that into um, to a place where you can actually do something. And also we have to think about the legacy that we're leaving to other people. Um, we're showing our kids that being online all the time and being really anxious is the model that they should follow by doing that, um, taking some time out and going for walks and being alone without the internet or being with other people Um that's probably one of the best things we can do, especially if we're creative people. Um, we need to we need to turn off and believe that our creative outputs um, are contributing to this change just in a slower way. And it's okay to be slow. We don't have to be fast all the time. One hundred percent. My my therapist as well, because um, I was falling into quite a dark obsessed with the news hole um made me delete the apps from my phone not just social media but like news apps don't get the alerts limit your engagement with the news to twice a day once in the morning once at night maybe if that doesn't work for you lunchtime evening twice a day that's it such good advice rather than just like obsessively clicking refresh on those live blogs there is a a tipping point between being informed and being obsessed. I find that I fall into that categorization very, very easily. And I think what you were saying about like stepping back and taking a walk and, and working out how you can help in your own way. Um, in doing that, you also have to help yourself. So be educated and engaged to a point. Um, for me, I'm again, needing, I've, deleted social media off my phone for now but I am also going to donate once a week to a relevant charity like you're saying for instance Sisters Inside is a really important one that helps incarcerated Indigenous women in Australia yeah I think there are a number of ways to stay engaged and to still look after yourself but I think it is important that we pick and choose like you were saying how we do that and how we go about it That's right. If people, like if someone has a great book inside them about a particular subject, you know, take a year out and write that great book because it may do more (laughs) than (laughs) your obsessive tweeting. (laughs) There you go. Take that year off. Write that that great book. (laughs) Yeah, just take a year off. So easy. (laughs) (laughs) I did want to ask you before we get to the shout out, because I will shout out your book in general. I think everyone should read it. But I also part listen to the audiobook and I did want to talk to you about this before we did get to the the recommendation stage of the podcast I have only just kind of started listening to audiobooks on the recommendation of my partner and I know you Laura so I knew it was going to be excellent because you do narrate it yourself and it was just so fun and I went back and forth between reading and listening how was that element we talked about writing Sue 
as a dingo, but how was it performing animal characters in the audio sense? Because you do perform them. They have very different voices and and different intonations. And, yeah, tell me about that experience. It was one of the most bizarre experiences I've had, <laughs> and I haven't actually listened to the audio book. I just couldn't. Oh, it's great. I couldn't do it. I, I Even when you said you'd listen to it before you said you liked it, my, you know, my heart started beating. <laughs> um, I, I was so. She runs to the sink and vomits again. <laughs> That's right. Blah. <laughs> Um, I, but I did beg to do the audio book. Um, they sort of said, no, no, we're going to get a proper actor to do it. And I said, no, I have to do it. And then I think they looked at the book and they saw all the different animal dialogue <laughs> and they thought, probably thought we couldn't pay an actor enough to do, you know, to take this on. Um, so it was such a joy to go in there and just, especially the insects. Uh, a lot of people find the insects in the book quite terrifying because they're sort of shouting over the page but to me it's gleeful it's this sort of like me and we and she you know and so I just got to (laughs) belt it out and really have fun with voice um, in that place but also it was a really really fast track lesson in adaptation because of course I'd spent these many years working on the page um, and having this internal vision of what the animal voices were like, but I'd never, ever thought about how they would actually sound. Um, So I talked with my partner about it and he talked to me about how, about the physicality, about how I really wanted to emphasise the wonderful physicality of other animals. And so I did things like manipulated my face, like I'd, you know, I'd I'd push my cheeks together or I'd hold out my lip or I'd squeeze my nose or I'd wobble my chin. Um, So I was doing sort of this improv clowning. (laughs) (laughs) I wish the listeners could see that because I can actually see Laura doing that on the video chat. It's pretty great. I might get you to do it. I'll take a photo of it later so I can put it on our Instagram. Sure. It'd be very flattering, (laughs) I'm sure. (laughs) Um, so in a way it sort of added this, this bodily element to me because I'd been writing these animals, but I hadn't really been going through their physicality. Um, so I had a lot of fun embodying that, but I also really tried, I didn't want to make the animal voices, um, part of the cliche of the way we think cats speak slightly sexily or something. (laughs) Um, I wanted it to be for some reason, um, I wanted it to be, yes, I know why someone has to look into why we make cats sexy. Can you please write that essay? I really want to read it. Sure. Maybe it can be a co-publication. Um, so I wanted it to be, odd and otherworldly and very non-human without being the cliche animal voice. No, it was incredible. Um, I understand not the impulse of not wanting to listen to your own stuff, though. I think that's that's only human. And I think there's something with audio in particular. Like I don't go back and listen to Sisteria after I've edited it. It's like published and done. I'm not going to be like, oh, I can't wait to listen to my own voice for <laughs> 45 minutes today no thank you nothing thank you for listening if you are listening thank Um, you for listening to our voices that we can't stand ourselves (laughs) that's a classic thing though like I remember being young and recording it and or like remember when um what are they called answering machines started and people would be like is that what I really sound like like, "Mm, am I really that shrill yeah (laughs) 
No, I love I loved the audiobook. I highly recommend it. And I think that um an audiobook is also a really good way of getting out and about, just back to what we were saying with the arrogant question, going for walks. Chuck in an audiobook and then you can come back and read some in the bath or read some at home. But it's a really good way of much like a podcast, slightly more transformative. Um yeah, I highly, highly recommend Laura's. What's your shout out, Laura? I am completely obsessed with um, the novel Severance by Ling Ma. Uh, I finished it um, a few nights ago and I am so sad. Like I'm so sad it's gone. It's not a long book. It's a pandemic novel. Um, It's set in New York. If you think that my book um, had some insights into the pandemic, this is mind-blowing um and it's an incredible narrative that flips between a woman's life in New York where she works in a strange sort of fairly repetitive job in publishing and then flipping to her life um during this pandemic called Shen Fever um very similar to coronavirus which which sweeps through and basically turns people into zombies and somehow she she survives it um it is just it's funny it's chilling it's prescient it's absolutely of this time and even though some pandemic books or or, um, disaster books might be hard to read in this time I think that this is definitely one for this moment. Is it a new release? It actually came out in 2017 but I suspect it's having rather a resurgence at the moment. (laughs) I'm surprised you're still reading about pandemics even in your fiction reading. Well, actually, um, when I was writing The Animals in That Country, I pretty much just read animal books, so books with, you know, talking animals or any animals in them um, because pandemic or apocalypse was in a way a subplot. Um, I I didn't read so many of those books. So now I've got all these books to catch up on um, and just sort of roll around in. It's really lovely. Well, that's good. Well, you'll have plenty of time. But hopefully now you can get out and do more long walks. Now you're no longer on the lockdown. Um, Laura J. McKay, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciated your time and chatting with you. It was such an honour to be here. Thank you so much. Yay, thank you. (laughs) Sisteria is supported by the Melbourne City Council Arts Grants Program and recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to the elders, past and present, and to the elders of all the lands this podcast reaches. Subscribe to Sisteria everywhere and follow us at SisteriaPod. Links to everything discussed in the episode are available at SisteriaPodcast.com. Our theme music is by Rainbow Chan. The song is called Last and it's from her album Spacings. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and we hope you tune in again soon. Thank you.